0: The political left have long seen free speech as a core tenet. so it's been bizarre for many of us to watch the left abandon it and in many cases now even campaign against it my guest on the podcast today has written a new piece for tablet magazine arguing that in fact this trend is not particularly new the essay is titled who really benefits from the First Amendment. And it takes a look back in history at attacks on free speech originating on the left and stresses that the left needs to remember that free speech is essential for minority rights. Nadine Strasen is the former national president of the American Civil Liberties Union and a professor emerita at New York Law School. Her most recent book is Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship. I'm thrilled to have Nadine Strasen as my guest today on Lean Out. Nadine, welcome to Lean Out. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's so nice to have you on. Your tablet piece this week was so thought-provoking. I have been a political and classical liberal my whole life. I always assumed that free speech was a leftist value. And so I found it very perplexing to see the left abandon that. And just for Canadian context, this week from the University of Saskatchewan, a survey came out showing those on the political right in Canada more likely to support unlimited free speech, support on the left very low.
1: So this is happening here as well. Tara, Um, I read the Canada survey, which is completely typical uh, of the United States survey results as well. And the coverage was also typical because it was spun in the media outlets as proving somehow that free speech is not only a conservative value, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, to me, it's neither conservative nor liberal, but they go on to imply that it is a right-wing extremist or even white supremacist value. Um, A couple of experts were quoted making that point. And if you note the press coverage in the United States, including an established major mainstream media such as the New York Times, they tend to cover objections to violations of free speech as only coming from the right. Uh, So I think it's really a dangerous, vicious cycle that people um, get more and more reinforced that, well, if you truly are politically liberal or to the left of center, you must be opposed to free speech because it's only invoked by right wingers.
0: Mm-hmm. I know it's, it's very, uh, very strange and very concerning. Um, you go back in this piece to a Nat Hentoff book from the 90s, mm-hmm. free speech for me, but not for thee. Tell me a little bit about that book and how it influenced your thinking.
1: The book, quite frankly, didn't influence my thinking because when he, who was a good colleague and friend, wrote the book in 1992, I was well aware of the very same phenomenon uh, because I I had been a full-time free speech advocate, at least since I graduated from law school way back in 1975. And from the get-go, I was fighting against certain attacks that were coming from the left, as well as certain attacks that were coming from the right. Often their uh, targets of free speech, anti-free speech crusades were different, uh, but sometimes they were exactly the same. For example, very soon after I graduated from law school in the 1970s, there was a, not only a very strong so-called religious right movement, political conservatives, religious conservatives, uh, largely co- constituting members of the evangelical faith who believed that pornography or speech, uh, sexually explicit or sexually suggestive expression was dangerous to their religious and political values by undermining the traditional American family. At the same time, you had so-called radical feminists from the left who were crusading against pornography, uh, the same stigmatizing term that they use for sexually explicit expression, for a very different reason, namely that it, from their perspective, allegedly fostered violence and discrimination against women. Well, these two groups could not have been further apart in terms of their ideology. The feminists were advocating, of course, equal rights for women, LGBTQ rights, reproductive freedom, all of which were deeply opposed by the religious right. And yet they made a common cause in seeking to suppress sexually oriented expression uh, with a lot of adverse impact on all manner of really important sexual expression, regardless of what your views were. Attacks were made on the Bible, which should have bothered those from the religious right. And attacks were made even on the anti-pornography writings of some of the leaders of that movement themselves. Why? Because um, they described in the most vivid ways, the Uh pornography that they believed to be undermining and demeaning to women. So, you know, th- throughout my lifetime, I was aware of the point that Nat Hentoff was making, but he was, unlike me, a talented full-time professional journalist, and he made the point very compellingly.
0: Mm. You also, in your piece, raised the issue of Tipper Gore, which I, I started my career in hip-hop as a music journalist, so oh. I, remember, I remember those stickers. For people who don't know, can you talk a little bit about that moment in speech history and the impact of it?
1: Yes. So another example of the uh, liberal segment of the public and politicians spearheading attacks on certain free speech was uh, the Parents Music Advisory Council, I believe was its name, founded and led by Tipper Gore, who was then married to Al Gore, who was then a United States Senator from Tennessee, Democrat, both liberals. And Tipper Gore, as well as other liberal feminists, including African-American feminists and civil rights leaders, were very distressed about lyrics in popular music, including rap and hip-hop, which their young kids, including their girls, were listening to because some of the lyrics were violent and misogynistic. Uh, And interestingly enough, There was another common cause with the right because some of these lyrics were allegedly instigating violence against police officers. They were extremely critical of exactly what has now become criticized uh, worldwide, namely police abuse and unjustified force and even killing of young African-American men. So these were very important protest songs, songs of liberation, and yet focusing on, on the violence you know, just the ex-literal lyrics. Um, Tipper Gore, she testified before Congress. Congress was about to pass a law uh, that would have imposed some kinds of restrictions on these, on these lyrics. And as has often happened in the past when a cultural industry sees the handwriting on the wall that it's gonna be subject to regulation, it decides, well, the lesser of two evils is we will voluntarily self regulate that happened with movie industry that's why we have ratings there and it happened with the the music industry and i understand that the the so called tipper stickers are are still required to be well, I mean, if anybody buys uh, the hard copies anymore. Uh, um, so, you know, another example and 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 the attacks on violence by the left continued very strongly in the wake of really tragic incidents such as uh, school shootings, which amazingly just became a phenomenon. You know, now it seems sadly as if they're happening almost every, every month or so at least. Uh, but that was a new phenomenon then. And as is often the response in our society. If you don't like some real world phenomenon, well, let's go after expression. You know, it must be speech that is causing this violence. And, you know, you would have thought after a violent episode, there might be an attempt to rein in access to uh, guns in the real world. No, but there was a serious effort to rein in access to images of guns in the media. And, and so we had um, all kinds of laws passed, including, you know, what people probably don't even realize is that we all now have a so-called V-chip in our television sets that stands for violence. And that was required to be installed going back to the 90s and a crusade against media violence as a supposed instigator of real world violence and censoring media is supposedly a way to deal with this real world problem. And that's that's one of the flaws of censorship is, you know, in addition to all of the other flaws, it's always a diversion from dealing with the, in a meaningful, effective way with the problems that are purported to be solved by censoring the expression. Mm.
0: I want to take a moment to speak about an event this week, which you linked to in your piece. So uh, an exchange in the Senate in a hearing about the overturning of Roe v. Wade an exchange between Berkeley law professor Kira Bridges and Josh Hawley. She accused Josh Hawley of being transphobic and said that this opens trans people to violence. So this is a really common idea on the left right now that you're drawing attention to in the piece, this conflation of speech with physical violence. And you say this poses even perhaps even more of a threat to a robust free speech culture than right wing attempts to shut it down
1: it's pick your poison. Um, the, the idea that words can literally constitute violence a uh, lot. If you accept that premise uh, for the sake of our argument, think of the overwhelmingly negative consequences that will follow logically. Since one is entitled to self-defense and defense of others against violence. That would mean that uh, with violence, and since there's an equation between words that are allegedly violent and physical violence, that would mean every time somebody said something that somebody processed as violence, including what a senator says, during a a hearing on a matter of legislative and public policy. You may disagree with what he's saying, but to characterize that as violence and therefore suggest that people would be justified in punching him in the face is really quite shocking, not to mention that the government could then use the very same coercive and punitive criminal law power that it uses to appropriately to punish physical violence by putting, you know, prosecuting Josh Hawley and putting him in prison for saying something that somebody processes as as transphobic. And and these are not just rhetorical excesses, Tara. I think it goes back a couple of years, the meme of uh, punch a Nazi in the face, believing that that would be justified. Uh, I know that you've had my friend and colleague, Greg Lukianoff, on your wonderful program. I'm honored to follow in his footsteps. Uh, For more than a year now, Greg and I have been posting a series of answers to bad arguments about free speech that both of us continue to hear in our constant speaking and debating about free speech. And I think the very, very first one, I'm quite sure the very first one. Was responding to this argument that speech equals violence, and you know we each make good but different points, which is which is interesting. And uh, as always, I learned from Greg, and he's nice enough to say vice versa. But what um, what he stressed in his answer to that argument is that you know nothing could be further from the truth, in so far as answering responding to disagreements and trying to, uh, to, to a point that you disagree with and, uh, and trying to work out disagreements through discussion, through negotiation is the antithesis of violence. We're not gonna fight it out physically. We are fighting a, a battle of ideas. And he quoted Sigmund Freud, who apparently was paraphrasing somebody else, that civilization began the first time somebody responded to throwing a rock with words rather than throw, throwing another rock back. Mm.
0: And that's. It's a great uh, place to leave it. I wanted to just end by talking about minority rights because you emphasize in the piece that freedom of speech is important for marginalized populations, for unpopular opinions. Jonathan Rausch will be on the podcast next week, pioneering uh, gay marriage activist. He has said to me that gay marriage would not have happened without free speech. Why is free speech so important to minority rights?
1: And John, another great colleague and friend, and I have to say, you know, he is making a point that has been made by every crusader for every equal justice cause uh, that I've been able to document throughout history and around the world. And Tara, it's the reason why many minority group activists Uh, and human rights champions around the world oppose censorship, including of hate speech, not because they have anything like a First Amendment uh, free speech guarantee in their own constitutions, they don't, but specifically from the point of view of what is going to be effective in advancing their causes. By definition, if you are a member of a minority group, whether it's an identity minority, or an ideological minority, you lack access to majoritarian power. In a democracy, our elected officials, unsurprisingly and appropriately, are accountable to the majority of their constituents, to those who wield power. So by definition, those who are in the minority uh, are not gonna be able to win their causes through popular vote. Uh, The only tool we, and I put myself in several minority groups including probably as an advocate of free speech, but as a woman and as a Jew, a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, I I very much identify with minority perspectives and and identities. So the only tool we have is persuasion advocacy, litigation, petitioning the government, lobbying, these are all exercises of First Amendment rights. And one of the interesting things about US history is you look at the pro-human rights causes that ultimately have succeeded. I mean, there are always battles ahead of us, but have made huge strides during the 20th and 21st centuries. All of those movements, and starting really in the mid-20th century is when the success started to steamroll, but all of those movements had much earlier antecedents. Going back at least a century, there were efforts to uh, implement gay rights and not to mention you know, racial justice and reproductive freedom and women's rights, and, and they all faltered. Uh, It's no coincidence that those movements began to gain momentum in the mid-20th century, exactly when the United States Supreme Court started to put real teeth into the First Amendment free speech guarantee. It's well known, for example, that Martin Luther King wrote his historic letter from a Birmingham jail. I don't think most people realize that he was in jail for exercising what we would now see as an absolutely fundamental First Amendment right to criticize government policy and to advocate for change. Uh, John Lewis, another hero of the civil rights movement who was in Congress for many, many years, um, famously said, without freedom of speech, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. And John makes that point, as do others, very eloquently about the LGBTQ rights movement. I certainly feel that as a member of a a religious minority that is now politically despised as well. Freedom of speech is, is, is the only tool for um, effectively crusading against anti-Semitism.
0: Well, I have tremendous respect for your work, Nadine. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Well, thank you so much, Tara, for your brilliant exercise of your own free speech rights and facilitating those of uh, some of the rest of us.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.